The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. What amazing day already. I don't know if you realize this. I think my math is right on the, the list that's in your bulletin or worship guide. We have 22 students here who are finishing high school. I don't know if you recognize just because we don't often see it when we're in here on Sundays and most of you aren't here midweek when our youth groups gather, but God is doing an amazing work through this church amongst the young people of the South Valley. And we are blessed to see literally hundreds of students and kids here regularly hearing about the gospel, being discipled into the way of Jesus. And it is such a blessing to be here. Thank you, Anthony, and the incredible leadership he does, and all who are involved, our youth leaders, all the way on down. Parents, thank you so much for all you do. By the way, besides just praying for the people on that list, if you went to one of the colleges that they are going to, I know there's a lot in California, but there's some others as well, find them or ask Anthony or Dustin who they are so you can meet them. Give them the scoop. Let them know where the good coffee houses are, the good restaurants, right? Like everyone needs that when they go off to school. So, so do, do that if you would. If you have a Bible this morning, I'd invite you to open it to the book of Genesis. Um, and we're gonna be in chapter three. Genesis chapter three, if you are new to church or new to Christianity, uh, Genesis is the very first book of your Bible. So just find the table of contents, flip over a couple of pages. So we're gonna be in the third chapter of Genesis this morning. Well, there's often a familiar thing that, that is true of most movies and movie series and novels and book series that, that we like. And specifically, I know ones that I often enjoy. And most often, those books or novels or movies contain something that we often call foreshadowing. They contain foreshadowing, meaning that you'll, you'll, you'll watch this movie, you'll read this book, and at the end of it, it's kind of like the big reveal, and you realize there were like hints at it all along that you didn't know what the ending was, and so you missed. And so if you really like it, you go back and you watch it again, and you're like, oh, did you catch that? Oh, did you see that they're hinting, they're pointing to something that's coming at the end? One of my favorite uh, movies in which this is done is the movie Shawshank Redemption, many, many years old now, if you've, uh, if you've seen it. And it's a movie where there's a man by the name of Andy who's in prison, and it's basically the story of him surviving and eventually escaping, sorry to ruin the ending, uh, escaping from prison using a rock hammer as he chisels out the wall to get out of his cell. And throughout the movie, there's such imagery and such foreshadowing, one of which is he actually hides this little hammer that he has, he hides it from the guards by placing it in a Bible. And during one of the inspections, the warden comes and holds on to the Bible and looks at Andy and says, salvation lies within. And he just must smile, like if only you knew. But there's foreshadowing even before that, because when he cuts out a section of the Bible for this hammer to sit in, he puts it on this side. And on this side is the start of the book of Exodus, of a people being led out of prison and slavery into freedom. There's foreshadowing throughout the Bible is filled with similar things, foreshadowing, foretelling the coming of Jesus. See, if, you, if you've read through the Bible, surprise, in the Gospels in Matthew, Jesus shows up and it's not like, wow, that's totally unexpected. Where did that come from? Well, there's a whole Old Testament to point to and to foreshadow what is coming. Jesus is expected and anticipated throughout all of Scripture. And this morning, we're going to see that from the very moments that sin and evil enter into the world, God will right away start to reveal his plan 
and how in Jesus, he will reconcile us and all things ultimately to him. My hope is kind of twofold in doing this series as we look through the next several weeks at many of these Old Testament passages. First, it's just that you would cultivate a deeper appreciation for all of scripture. That even those parts that maybe you don't read regularly that are in the Old Testament have deep significance, meaning, and value to us and have lessons and things to teach us. And hopefully this will bring that even to a new light. Secondly, I hope that you have a deeper appreciation and worship for God. That you realize that his heart for salvation, his plan of redemption is not an accident, but it's been all along. And as you start to grasp more and more how great that plan is, it'll cultivate greater worship within you. Well, in the book of Genesis, the first two chapters in Genesis 1 and 2 are the creation of the world. It's God creates, and it's not meant for us to know exactly the timing or exactly how all of that took place for scientific reasons, but the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 is to let us know that God speaks out of nothing, the world is created, and that that world is in a perfect relationship with God, both creation as well as humanity, who is specifically uniquely made in the image of God, is in this perfect relationship with God. Then everything's good and Genesis 3 comes along. And there's this character that's introduced, someone who appears, this thing appears as a serpent, goes into this garden where Adam and Eve, they're not named yet, but that's who we know they are, are in this garden. And the serpent starts to question and put doubts into the minds of them on God's goodness, God's love for them. He tempts them with this tree that God has told them not to eat from. Ultimately, if you know the story, they take of it and eat of it and they recognize right away what they've done. God comes into the garden, he cries out, where are you? And they try and hide from God, but eventually their sin is revealed, but it's not even a model of confession. Adam blames both his wife and then he blames God for giving him his wife. He doesn't accept really responsibility for it at all. Some things don't change, right? So, and in the midst of all of this blaming, God speaks. And he provides some, some guidance and some wisdom that, that will direct really the course of the rest of the Bible, the course of the rest of history. And today we're going to look really at one verse, but I'll read two verses for us to set it up. In Genesis 3, God speaks first to the serpent, the serpent who came in and deceived man and woman to do this thing. It says in Genesis 3:14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. It's a a curse of humility, of, of, of lowering of this serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Today, we're going to spend our next 25 minutes or so looking, yes, at just this one verse, Genesis 3.15. Scholars sometimes call this what is known as the Proto-Evangelium. That's a phrase probably originally coined. We know that Martin Luther used the phrase over 500 years ago. Perhaps it was before them, but that's, I believe, the first recorded phrase we have. It means the first gospel. Proto means first. Evangelium is the Greek word for gospel. The first glimpse of the good news of what God is going to do in Jesus in our world. This is one of the most significant verses in the Bible, I would argue. So much so, they're like, wait, do you actually have enough to talk for like 20 minutes on one verse? This week, I came across a whole PhD dissertation over 400 pages on this one verse. So yes, I have plenty to talk about, and we could go a lot longer today if I truly wanted, all right? So so there is plenty of depth here in this passage. This morning, we're going to look at three lessons for us from this first gospel. 
three lessons from Genesis 3.15, this first glimpse of what God is going to do in the world. And the first lesson that we, that we can gain from this is this, is that we are all in a cosmic battle. Every single one of us is a part of a cosmic battle. And it's announced there at the beginning of verse 15, that enmity will now come between the serpent and, and the woman and between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Enmity, the same word that we use for enemy, comes from the exact same word. It's this concept of hostility, of conflict that is now entered into the world between the serpent and the woman and their offspring. Now, for us to understand what this enmity has to do with anything, it's important that we think through and understand who this serpent is. Some translators or scholars will look at this and say, well, well, what that simply means is that explains why women are afraid of snakes. I'm like, I think it means a little bit more than that. Also, guys are afraid of snakes as well, just as much, I think. So, so it must mean more than that. So who is the serpent? Well, to understand who the serpent is in Genesis 3, we actually need to back up a little bit to, to understand the words and how the, the words angels and who the angels are in the Bible and help us make sense of this. You're like, what is he talking about? It'll connect, I promise you. Sometimes in the Bible, the word angel simply is angelic messenger or a person from God that's describing a messenger come from God, an angel. There's two words, though, that the Bible uses to describe specifically types of angels. The first and by far the most common, over 90 occurrences in the Bible, is the word cherubim. Cherubim is a type of angel. We see this in Genesis 3 at the end of the chapter. Cherubim are sent to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are kicked out of it. They occur all throughout the Bible. Cherubim are a type of angel. There's one other type of angel that we see as well in the Bible. This only really occurs once in Isaiah chapter 6. And so let's read in Isaiah chapter 6 who this other angel is. This class of angels called the seraphim. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he's caught into this vision. He says, says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, these seraphim are angels, and they're ministering in front of the presence of God, chanting this song, singing praise to God. That is their primary method. That's primarily what they do. What's interesting is that the word in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the word for serpent and the word for seraphim, it's the same word. It's the same thing. And so what happens when we see in Genesis 3 a serpent showing up, we shouldn't think like, oh, this is a rattlesnake or a viper or something. We should think this is seraphim who have fallen out of the presence of God. This is an angelic being that has been kicked out of God's presence and is now trying to destroy and go after God's creation. And we see this this serpent being a fallen angel eventually identified throughout scripture as Satan or the devil. This is why there's so much of a description throughout the Old Testament specifically of of language of of people of God and God himself fighting against a serpent-like creature. It's why in some of the, the imagery in Psalms and in Job, there's images of dragons, of Leviathans. We shouldn't think of God literally wrestling like dragons. This isn't a fantasy novel, but it's picking up on this theme of the serpent and serpent-like creatures doing battle with God. 
Eventually, we see this kind of image come to fruition at the very end of the story of Scripture as well. This is the beginning in Genesis 3. Fast forward to the end, this vision that John has of the end times in Revelation 12. If you haven't read it before, I'd encourage you to read it today, and you'll see some of the starkling parallelism between Genesis 3 and Revelation 12. Well, in Revelation 12, there's a battle between a dragon, and what is the dragon after? He chases after a woman and he wants to devour that woman's offspring. Huh, I wonder where that comes from. Why would a snake be after a woman's offspring? It's going back to Genesis 3.15. And Revelation identifies for us who that dragon is. It says this in Revelation 12.9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with And so there's this cosmic battle that that we're introduced to, that there's going to be enmity, conflict between God and Satan, between the people of God and those who are against the people of God that will continue ultimately until God returns. The reality is, is we are still engaged in this cosmic battle today. That you and I, we didn't choose to be a part of it, but we are a part of this cosmic battle today. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter six. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, sometimes to us, specifically as Westerners, this sounds crazy, right? This sounds ridiculous. Like, what, are you writing a book or selling a movie? Like, what are you talking about, demons and angels? Like, this is so crazy. The reality is, though, is that we live in a culture that largely ignores the spiritual realities of the world. We live in a materialistic culture that we think we are so advanced, we've outgrown that, and that talking about anything spiritual, whether angels or demons, whether Christian or not, like, it's just our world just generally tends to ignore it and act like it doesn't exist. We are one of the first cultures in the history of mankind to think this way. If you've ever traveled and gone to other countries and had religious conversation, go to most other places throughout the world that aren't Western in thought and say like, hey, did you know there's angels and demons? They'd be like, yes, stupid. Like, that's not new. What are you talking about? Like that that is so forefront and it's obviously understood in every other culture throughout the world. Like that, that's not, that's nothing new. What are you, of course there's this, that's not a new thing. What new could be like that, that there's a God and, and all of this. But we, we so minimize and we neglect this. It does a Christian wrong if they are ignorant of the battle that they are in. As Christians, don't be ignorant of spiritual warfare and the role that it is playing and is playing even in your life, the role that it's playing in our church. Now, I want to caution this. We don't need to overemphasize this either, right? Some, some Christians go a little too far, right? They see a demon under every single rock, It's like, no, there's not demons every single place doing every single thing wrong and bad in your life or in the world. But most Christians, I would say, especially in the Western world, especially here, most Christians under-spiritualize their lives. We under-spiritualize it, meaning we will try and come up with solutions in the physical world, in the material world for everything around us, and we will even neglect to think that maybe some of the things that are happening around us are because of spiritual conflict that's taking place around us. I don't think it's any coincidence that there's such a rise as we neglect this idea that there's a spiritual battle that we're a part of. There's such a rise even amongst Christians in our world today of anxiety. 
And I'm not saying that every person who has anxious thoughts or anxiety in them is influenced from the, from the spiritual world. I'm not at all saying that, right? There's plenty of other things that could and often contribute to it. But I'm not saying that no one has anxiety because there's demonic influence on them. There certainly is. But sometimes we will try and go through every single explanation of why I may be struggling with something. And at the very end, we're like, oh, maybe I should pray and ask God about this. Like after we've seen a therapist, we've gone to a doctor, we've gotten, like after every single thing, we've thought, oh, maybe there's a spiritual component to why I'm struggling with this. We've struggled with worry, with fear, with all these other sinful things in our lives, these strongholds that seem to be over us, these addictions that you just can't seem to break out of, no matter how hard you try. And you've never stopped to think, hey, maybe this is demonic oppression in my life. And I need not just to try harder, I need to pray over this in the name of Jesus. Now, here's the thing, as Christians, and we're going to get to this by the end of the time, we don't need to live in fear that we're in a cosmic battle, right? We'll get to the end of the book. We know who wins, right? We, we, we don't have to live in fear. This is not meant to scare you into doing anything. But some of the challenges that Christians face, we could have freedom from not if we try harder, not if we see the right person, but we'll only have freedom for when we claim the name and blood of Jesus over our lives, that these things cannot have power over us anymore when we claim Jesus in our lives, that we are still a part of this cosmic battle today. So recognize that this is true. We, our culture ignores it, but we as Christians, we can't. We see that this is still going on in the world. Why? It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Enmity, hostility between the forces of evil and that which God loves. It goes all the way back to the beginning. The second lesson that we can learn from the first gospel is that we are each a part of a spiritual family. Every single one of us is a part of a spiritual family. So what you have is there's the serpent and the woman, and then from it, right, easily flows, there's offspring, right, which will also experience enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Now, Again, this is far more than just a naturalistic explanation. Well, that's why people are scared of snakes. That's what it means. It's far more than that. And scripture goes to show that this offspring that comes both from the serpent and the offspring from the woman is not talking about physical offspring, but spiritual. It's not a physical descendant. He's talking about a spiritual descendant, those who are of the family of God and those who are of the family not of God, the family from the serpent, those who are under Satan's influence. And we see this actually right away in the next story in scripture, in Genesis chapter four. We're introduced to the first kids in the Bible, Cain and Abel. And they both are workers, uh, different, different occupations. They come and they bring offerings. They bring sacrifices to God. Abel's is found to be favorable. Cain's God rejects. But, but Cain is very angry that, that his offering wasn't accepted by God. But God tells him this, verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so how does Cain respond to sin crouching at the door, to to being pulled into the family of the serpent? How does he respond to it? Verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. We see right away, the offspring are very, very different. Not only does Cain kill him, God shows up and says, Cain, where is your brother? A very similar question to what he asked Adam and Eve in chapter three. Where, where are you? Where is your brother? Cain lies. and says, what, am I my brother's keeper? 
God responds, his blood is crying out from the grounds. And based on what you've done, you will be cursed as well. Now, Cain shares a lot of similarities with the serpent that just came in the passage immediately preceding it. Like the serpent, Cain is caught lying and deceiving. Like the serpent, Cain is a murderer. Like the serpent, Cain is also cursed. And so Cain is not, even though he is the physical descendant of the woman, he's not of the offspring of the woman because it's a spiritual dimension that it is talking about. This dichotomy is seen throughout the story of the whole of scripture. Abraham, when he's called his offspring, Isaac and Ishmael. One is of the family, one is not. Jacob and Esau, we see the conflict of Israel and Egypt and one being of the people of God, one being not. This idea of who, who's one off, who you are the offspring of is such an important concept throughout the scripture that Jesus actually ties into this in his ministry. By the time that Jesus came along to identify as someone who is of the spiritual family of God, you would claim to be of Abraham's offspring. Abraham is the founder of the nation of Israel, ultimately a descendant from Adam and Eve. And you would claim, well, I'm a son or I'm a daughter of Abraham. And it was a spiritual claim, not only just a physical one, which is why it's so strong that when Jesus debates with the Pharisees on where his, who his father is in John chapter eight, what he tells them comes on so strong in John 8, 44, when he says this, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That he identifies them as children of the serpent, not as children or offspring of the woman. This is why when Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, descendants from the serpent, it is such a more strong statement towards them than just like, I don't like you. He's saying you are of the serpent, the devil. That's the strong statement that Jesus is making to them. And so if there's these two spiritual families flowing throughout the storyline of scripture, how do we become a part of God's family? How do we become a part of this offspring and not of the serpent's offspring? Well, the message of scripture is clear from Genesis to the end. It's always a matter of faith. It's never been about physical lineage or physical descendants. It's always been the response of faith to what God has done. Galatians puts it very clearly, puts it this way. And first in verse 26 of chapter three, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons or sons and daughters of God. How? Through faith. And a few verses later, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Even it goes all the way back to talking about Abraham. He was credited as righteous. It's not anything he had done. He was declared righteous. Why? Because of his faith in God, all the way back to the beginning, that faith is what incorporated us into this spiritual family, into this offspring versus of the offspring of the serpent. And so the question for us is, which family are we a part of? Are we a part of the family of God based only on our faith, not on our works, not on what we've done, not on how hard we've tried, but only based on faith? Because if we are not part of that family, based on faith and what Jesus has done for us, we're part of this other family the family that ultimately goes back to the serpent. And so we see these two spiritual lines coming and playing throughout all of scripture. The third lesson that, that this passage, this first gospel has to teach us is that our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus. 
Let's read again in, in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And so it's talking about a large group, but then suddenly it narrows from a large group and it gets very singular again. He, meaning the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, some translators or some Bibles that have this passage, he will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. The reason that it's translated that way is, is that bruise here is the same word, crush, bruise, but the, the location of it identifies how harsh or the consequences of the strike, right? The location of where the strike, this bruise, this crushing is to be taken place shows the seriousness of it. We get it. An injury to the back of your foot is not near as serious as an injury to your head. Right, One is a fatal blow that will debilitate you. One will just make you hobble a little bit. It will be painful, but it doesn't kill you. And it's this idea that the offspring of the woman, one is coming who will crush the serpent's head, even though in the process of doing that, there will be pain from the serpent back towards this one in response. He will bruise the heel. There will be pain in accomplishing it, but ultimately the offspring of the woman will be victorious. This offspring that it's referring to is Jesus. He is the one who will come and will crush the head of the serpent, even though as a result of doing it or by doing it, his heel will be bruised. When you think of where this took place, the first thing that we should think of is this first crush to the enemy, this first blow to Satan was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. This first, this first blow was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Now, most of the time, when we think of what Jesus did on the cross, we think of it in personal terms. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? What Jesus did on the cross is profoundly personal and changes each your and my life. It is profoundly personal, but it's more than just that. That Jesus accomplished more on the cross than just paying for your sin and for my sin. It actually was a show and demonstration of his power and authority over even the demonic realm itself. Colossians 2 puts it this way, combining both the personal as well as these other impacts of it. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Some translations put that Jesus put the rulers and authorities, that's demonic powers. He put them as a public spectacle of his victory. And the, the word there that it's pulling from has a unique cultural context for them. In that time, when, the, when the, the soldiers would go out and fight and the Caesars would maintain a victory over someone else, they would capture soldiers. And what they would do is bring them back, bound in chains and parade them in front of the people as they walked victorious back into their capital city. And what Jesus is saying is just as a Caesar would do that, he has achieved victory over all the demonic forces and he, they're already in chains and it's like he's parading them behind by what he did on the cross. They no longer have power because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the first blow, but we live between the first and the second when the final blow to Satan will come. As some people put it, we live in the already and not yet. We've seen a defeat of Satan, but the ultimate defeat is still coming. As Paul puts it in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I wonder where Paul got that imagery of crushing someone under a foot from. 
It's pulled directly from Genesis chapter three. The final strike is yet to come. And our future hope is that this serpent, the one who introduced evil and sin into our world, will be totally defeated. In Revelation 20, there's a picture of how the story ends. We saw how it begins. The world is perfect, and then the serpent comes and messes it all up by deceiving us. At the end of the story is God dealing once and for all with this serpent so that it will all be made right again at the end. And how is the serpent seen? Revelation 20, starting at verse two, says this. And he, that's an angel, actually, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, all the way back, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. A few verses later, it says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What's amazing is the story of Revelation shifts. It's this vision that John has of the end of the world. In Revelation 19, a character shows up on the scene and it all changes. A character shows up and it's a rider dressed or riding on a white horse. His name is faithful and true. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the moment that one, Jesus shows up, it's over for the serpent. In fact, he doesn't even bind the serpent himself. He sends his angels to do it for him. He's like, I don't even need to mess with this. I have people who can do this for me, right? It's that much power. He doesn't even have to do it himself. The moment he arrives, victory is full and complete forever. It all changes when Jesus shows back up on the scene. See, it's hinted right at the beginning of scripture in Genesis 3, one is coming who will crush the serpent. And the story of scripture up to the very end is the story of how Jesus is that one who will come again, who has come once and will come again. And when he comes again, he will defeat the serpent once and for all. See, it's a reminder from Genesis to Revelation Jesus is the main character of the Bible. Jesus is the main character of the Bible. Now, I know like if, if you go home, like, oh, what did I learn at church today? Jesus is the main character of the Bible. You'd be like, well, that's not rocket science, right? Like I think as most Christians, we get that. We get that as most Christians, but when we come down throughout the week or when we're having a hard time or whatever, most Christians, when we read the Bible, we tend to think it's all about us. Just our natural mindset. We read the Bible not thinking it's about Jesus, but our natural benefit is to think it's about us. And so we sit down and are like, mm, what good message can this give me for today? What, what can the Bible give me that I need? Now, the Bible is God's word for life, right? And it will teach and reprove and correct us. And it is active and living and it can do that. But the Bible is not meant just so you can get a pithy statement to give you a little bit of hope and get you through your day. The Bible is meant to reveal the God of creation who loves you to you. And maybe sometimes what you need from the Bible is not a little something for you. Maybe sometimes what you need for the Bible, from the Bible is to catch a greater vision of who Jesus is, of his love for you, of how all of human history points to Jesus and what he's done for you and what he promises still one day to do for you. That's why we can sing songs like the battle is already won. Why? Well, because we, we know how the story ends. We just looked at it. Jesus will defeat sin and death forever. And so we look forward to that hope and our eyes of scripture need to be pulled off of ourselves and ultimately pointed and pulled to God and to Jesus and who he is. The story is a reminder from Genesis to Revelation that Jesus is our only hope of victory. 
of the offspring, we are in this enmity, this battle. And our only hope of achieving victory is this one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. On the cross, he made salvation possible. One day he will return and fully defeat sin and evil once and for all. And we live in between that time where we hold on to what he's done and we look forward with anticipation on what one day again he will do. Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you for the hope that is found only in you. God, we thank you that from the very beginning of time, it was in your heart to reconcile the whole world, to reconcile us to you through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that our hearts would so be drawn to the love of Jesus, the love of God that's been displayed throughout human history. God, that we are not an afterthought, but we are close to you. That's why you sent Jesus for us, because of your love for us. God, we thank you that because of you, we do know how the story ends. No matter what circumstances may be facing us today, we can be people of hope, people of joy, because we are a part of the family of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.